0: We hope to best articulate the soul of a ski area to our customer base such that they can find their next favorite one. And uh, I think that's one of the awesome things about skiing. Every ski area is unique. Every ski area is worth visiting. And we like to sort of shine a light on all these places that may not have the same marketing budget as you know the, the awesome places that are associated with the larger conglomerates.
1: Welcome to the Storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester. The Storm Skiing Podcast explores the business, history, and culture of Northeast skiing. Subscribe to the Storm Skiing Newsletter at skiing.substack.com to get all Storm Skiing Podcasts and content as soon as they're live. You can download the Storm Skiing Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, and Pocket Cast. Follow us on Twitter at Storm Ski Journal and on Facebook. Episode eight, Evan Reese, co-founder and CEO of Liftopia. Are you still buying your lift tickets at the mountain? If so, why? Are you also the guy who still rocks a flip phone? Are you the guy in the fantasy football league who still sends a check because you can't figure out PayPal? Why are you doing this to yourself? Unless you're hitting one of the few mountains with no online presence and no pass coverage, there's no reason to do this. There are better ways. Liftopia is one of those ways. Walk-up lift ticket price at Magic this year is $74. You can ski there for 26 bucks most Thursdays if you buy in advance on Liftopia right now. Magic's not alone. Most of the Northeast best mountains are on Liftopia. Sunday River, Sugarloaf, Smugs, Wildcat, J Peak, Mad River Glen, all available at huge discounts on Liftopia. Not long ago, I connected with the guy who co-founded Liftopia, runs the whole thing. We talked about where Liftopia fits into this Megapass world and how you can get the best deals on lift tickets let's do it my guest today is the co-founder and ceo of liftopia the liftopia platform powers liftopia.com the world's largest online marketing channel for ski areas to sell their lift tickets and other products liftopia's platform also powers pricing and e-commerce services for more than 125 attractions and ticketing businesses including ski areas in the united states canada switzerland austria france and new zealand as well as other parks and attractions Evan Reese is my guest. Evan, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thanks for having me, excited for the conversation today.
1: So you founded Liftopia back in 2005. That was a very different industry environment and in fact, a very different internet. What was the problem you were trying to solve when you founded the site?
0: Yeah, um, well, maybe I'll give you a little bit of backstory on where I came from, because ahead of starting Liftopia, I had been at Hotwire, which is an Expedia company. And I think what, what we recognized is you know, online travel, uh, I guess relative to now, was still relatively new, but it was, it was maturing. And it was really common for hotels and airlines and car rental businesses to sort of seek presale, get people to buy in advance, um, but also use online um, channels to do so. And we, when we looked at the ski industry, um, there are so many things that were sort of similar to travel that just suggested that it was inevitable they would seek this presale behavior in the future. And I think then, you know, what, what was true then that's true today in my brain is, is you know, at some point in the future we saw or believed that it would, be, it would make as much sense to buy a, a lift ticket at a ticket window um, as it does to buy an airline ticket at the airport. Um, and so, what what we decided to do is well, one we, we were shocked that no one had had done this successfully before, um, but we just started down the path of exploring the, the similarities and differences between travel and ski, um, and started to work to empower the industry to drive this behavior using you know best practices in online marketing and, and dynamic pricing and and, and e commerce. Um, so, yeah, it was just, it was a, a fun start. It's, it's crazy that it was 2005, though.
1: Right. I, I read somewhere something about how you used to go out to Tahoe, and sometimes the weather would just be the pits, and sometimes it would be great, but you can never really tell. So you just didn't know if it was worth it. So your initial concept seemed to be more around these last-minute ticket deals to try to make it incentivize people to get out a little more.
0: Yeah, I would say— yeah. It was less about last minute. Um, it was trying to help the ski areas sort of reduce the last minute nature of their bu- the buying behavior that the customers saw. And you know they and we are really familiar with sort of weather being an obvious one, which is you know like skiing is a aspirational activity. I mean, if you ask anybody, would they like to ski more this year than they did last year? I mean, anybody who is a skier will say yes. Um, but there are all these things that get in the way of that aspiration if that customer doesn't buy before they show up. Um, And so, again, the obvious one being weather and snow, but there's so many other things. It's like I I woke up and I'm tired. I need to drive back to the sea. I I had too much fun at Apreski yesterday. You know, whatever it might be, and and we just realized that the ski areas needed a mechanism to reward customers for not waiting until the last minute. And, and, And that was... You know, if you read our, if you read our 43-page business plan, which we wrote back then, you know that that was what we were squarely aimed at: is how do we how do we help these ski areas efficiently drive greater volume out of their customers by giving them incentive to alter their buying behavior.
1: So since that point, a lot has changed. Take us from those origins to where uh, Liftopia is today.
0: Yeah, you know, to be honest, I. The, the fundamentals of what we were doing in 2005 were so, they seemed so obvious to me that it was shocking that the behavior change um, took longer th- than I anticipated, meaning that the, the math of the concept really supported um, this change for the industry, but it took a little bit longer for the industry to uh, sort of uh, get really behind this pre-sale initiative, and so those first few years, uh, we had a lot of convincing to do, you know, to, to convince skiers that, one, they should sell online, two, they should have different prices for different days, three, those prices should be lower than walk-up, um, four, that they should utilize some amount of data to understand the relative pricing efficiency, you know, then they should understand marketing efficiency and how much they spend versus how much they return Um, and by the way, they should do, should do all these things through us, which was, you know, a random group of people based in San Francisco who didn't grow up bumping lifts or bumping shares. Um, so I, I must say it was an uphill battle to, to, to win over the mentality of, of, um, the supply base. I think the, if you fast forward to today, you know, what's really interesting to me is, um, it's still relatively new for a certain subset of the industry. Um, so there's still some ski areas out there that don't sell online, that don't sell in advance. Um, then there are others who do sell online. Their pricing strategies are, are, are quite rudimentary. And I think it's, uh, it, it'll be interesting to see how rapidly these tactics move into the rest of the industry over the next few years. Because you have some ski areas today that drive you know, 80, 90% of their business um, sold in advance, and, and some it's zero. Um, and so it, it, it's difficult to sort of uh, put a litmus test on the industry as a whole, um, except there is you know, very real momentum around, sort of, hey, how do I drive this behavior? Uh, there's something to this pricing thing. And by the way, I should really pay attention to how efficient my online marketing ch- channels are driving conversion rates on my website. How do I do that? Um, and, and that right now, um, the vast majority of ski areas are really maturing as marketing organizations, and, and that's something that we always believed would occur, which is they'll they'll become, you know, as uh, in tune with the metrics that drive their marketing efficiency as they are with the metrics that drive their day-to-day operations efficiency. And, you know, snowmaking be a good being a good one.
1: Yeah, it's gotten to the point. Where I'm really surprised when I go to look at a ski area and there's no way to buy online ticket sales. It's it's just the the uh, walk-up price is listed, and that's it on a very rudimentary website. And there's there was one uh, in Pennsylvania last year, Elk Mountain, that I was going to go check out, and I couldn't figure out how to buy in advance, so I ended up just not committing to it. But uh, obviously, this is a battle you're winning. Do you have any headline numbers or or uh, metrics to just kind of display where your business is at right now?
0: Yeah, I mean, some of it's tied to the intro. We don't share our sort of high-level revenue, but Liftopia has grown every year that it's been in business. And I think the single metric that is most telling of what's happening um, within our platform, but I think within you know, most ski areas who are uh, selling online. We have multiple years in a row in which our same store sales, which is you know people who were for sale in the prior year and again in the next year and how much they grew, but we see same store sales growth, you know year over year of you know over forty percent, and what that really highlights because if if, if someone did five hundred dollars in sales one year and they grow by forty percent, it's not really that meaningful, obviously. So like big percentages off of small numbers are silly, but the point is. You know, we have businesses that have worked with us for six years that are growing their pre-sale business at, you know, that rate. The industry as a whole is adopting these tactics. They're getting better at their pricing strategy to drive the behavior. They're getting better at the marketing messaging to reinforce that behavior. And then along the side, you have a, a broader customer base who buys everything this way. And so what's interesting is even if ski areas are doing uh, rudimentary e-commerce, um, if they do nothing different this year than they did last year, um, they're going to see an, an increase in their online sales because it, it is a very much a consumer trend. Um, but what that can lead to is uh, sort of a good-to-great problem or a false summit or whatever you want to call it, which is, you know, well, that you grew by X percent doesn't matter if you. If you're only doing 5% of your business online when the market is doing 40 and I think that's sort of shining light a little bit on what Lyftopia provides the industry as a whole and, and the folks you know, that work with us more closely is insight into their relative performance um, and how effectively they're driving pre sale behavior relative to what is a, a pretty controlled data set at this stage. Um, so, yeah, anyways, the uh, the same-store sales growth is, is really compelling. I think also on a global scale, you know, as we enter new markets, and you know, you mentioned in the intro that we're we're now in Europe. You know, over there, they've actually been a little bit slower to start with pre-sale, but the adoption rate um, is much faster. Um, and so I think uh, you know the the U.S. ski industry it took many years of toe dips um, that turned into ankles and knees. Whereas uh, you know other industries and other other geographies maybe came a little bit later to the concepts, um, but they're they're kind of diving in head first.
1: right. And you mentioned connecting with consumers and and just this the way that ski is connect with consumers. since you started in two thousand and five, we saw this huge rise of the smartphone and of social media. How have those things changed the way that you've done business and connected with consumers?
0: Yeah, I mean, there's some trends that are, and I, I don't want to pretend like I know them better than anyone else, but uh, you know, the, the, the rise of a personal computer in your pocket has really changed the shape of consumer demand. And you know, so what, what, what most people were talking about for a long time is sort of the shift in traffic from web to mobile um, which is sort of true in, in absolute terms, like, like more web traffic is now on a phone than on, on, a, on a PC. But as it pertains to marketing efficiency and sort of, again, driving this behavior out of consumers, the, the, the quality of each individual piece of traffic has fallen off a little bit. Because if you think about how, if, if, if your phone has faster, um, a faster data connection, that means that in your free time, you have more time to just mess around on the phone, which means that there's some sort of like curiosity searches that might occur within Google or Facebook or Instagram or whatever that are actually lower quality intent than, you know, all else held equal, a search for Lyft tickets on Google eight years ago on a desktop, um, because in that three minutes that you have while you're waiting for the bus, you might mess around and go and find some things, but you're less likely to convert. And so what what most, um, especially sort of like complex uh, e-commerce businesses, you know, not selling little things like uh, toilet paper on Amazon, but, you know, complex travel itineraries, you see more e-commerce convert on mobile, and, and that just changes how marketers should think about how they're spending um, on their traffic. I think the other thing that's, Quite different today is, you know, Google has become much better at empowering people to and and companies to get in front of their audience, which means that uh, ski areas and we need to get much, much better over time at understanding. Know, how well we're spending marketing dollars to connect with customers to drive that behavior that, again, we're, we're trying to seek on behalf of our partners. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's a it's a world weird, wild world. And I think, you know, to speak to social quickly, I think something that the industry has done a really good job of is take advantage of the fact that it's really well-suited to the, the product that they are offering and the ski area's ability to gather um, really unique and engaging content um, for their social channels. I think the thing that sort of, what's been happening thereafter, however, is it used to be that social channels were really sort of like free uh, access to audience and that you know rapidly changed with Facebook um, and we anticipate is, is happening as well with Instagram. Um, and so you have uh, channels that We're very efficient for content-rich businesses like Ski Areas that, you know, over time, we're going to sort of gather more more marketing spend. And I think what this means for Ski Areas and us as an industry is um, how much and how well we spend our marketing dollars to engage with customers is going to be sort of the... the the key driver of success um, in the long term. You know, it's
1: interesting when I think of Liftopia and when I've thought of Liftopia for the past several years using it myself, I think of the advantages to me, the customer, right? So I can, I, if I know I'm going to go skiing a certain day in January, like I, I know that I'm going to be uh, in the Poconos for MLK weekend. I have an Epic Pass, but my daughter doesn't. So I went on Liftopia. I bought a Jack Frost Big Boulder two-day lift ticket for her for like 35 bucks a day. It was insanely cheap compared to what it's going to be on that holiday weekend, right? So to me, I've always thought of it, oh, this is a great thing for me as a skier. But the more that I researched Topia and the more that I talked to you, the more it's obvious that the big benefit here is maybe with your partners, even more so than the consumers. You know, you've talked about how over the decades, the resorts have gotten really good at snowmaking, uh, at grooming at you know putting new lifts in so they've kind of got that physical plant in place and especially the ski areas that are still around they they know what they're doing but they haven't done as good of a job with the technology because frankly it's it's hard it requires a different skill set that maybe as you said you didn't get as a guy who came up bumping lifts you might know everything about the mountain and how it works but you know it's that how do you integrate it with technology to reach your consumers Uh, and that's really where liftopia comes in right
0: yeah, it does. And, you know, I, I think one of the things that, that, again, was present within our business plan from the start is when we observed how ski areas were spending on distribution and the types of partnerships that they had, there really was an imbalance of value in terms of you know something that was good for consumers and in many cases good for some third party like a ski shop or Costco or whatever that really didn't benefit the ski area in the way that was originally intended. And uh, taking a, a ski shop deal as, as a great example. You know, way back when before Google, the reason to be in a ski shop was that you have, you know, a target audience who is the, you know, the right type of buyer because they are skiers within a target geography that was pretty well fenced. Meaning the only people who knew about the deals were the people who went to the store and what ended up happening is so soon as Google appeared, people could figure out that there's a discount lift ticket at a store. And so the, you know, the, the discount was driving the traffic into the store as, a, as opposed to um, the store driving the, the benefit into the ski area. And furthermore, whether it be you know, gas station deals or ski shop deals or Costco deals or even season passes to an extent, the consumption patterns of these really low-yielding products meant that they were into the highest value periods. And the customer really didn't have to uh, make that much of a commitment to find really meaningful savings. And so w- what we saw was, hey, look, here's here's a way that resorts are doing things that is really phenomenal for customers, but not necessarily that great or scalable for them. And you know, when we founded the company, we 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 knew we needed in order to scale to build a platform and an approach and a business model that benefited skiers and partners alike uh, in a fair way for both sides, um, because that way both sides would be interested in you know participating in the platform. And you know, so to this day, you know, our mission statement is we we help people spend more time doing the things they love by helping our partners run their businesses more effectively. And what we've always believed is is you know value propositions to both consumer and supply is what creates saleable quality long-term companies Um, and and that you know remains a piece of everything that we do um, today at the company
1: so one of the ways that a lot of these ski areas benefit from a partnership with you and i don't think i realized this until recently was they actually use your platform i think it's your cloud store platform to manage their ticket sales so One area that we discussed that has been on the show um, is Platykill in upstate New York. Small operation, family run. They don't have a big budget. It's the kind of place that when they need a new lift, they buy a used lift, they refurbish it themselves. They wouldn't be able to go out and hire the talent to build this in a proprietary way, like their own online ticketing platform. Yet they can license with Liftopia to manage that for them and that not only manages their ticket sales, but you build in these dynamic pricing elements. Is that right?
0: Yeah, and you know our company has always been about finding the pricing that drives the consumer behavior that our partners seek. Um, and so in, in many ways, we're, we're a pricing company that, that helps our partners distribute, um, obviously through liftopia.com, but then, as you mentioned, through our, our cloud store product. And I, I think you know, your point's a good one, which is, Every company needs to sort of decide what they can be best in the world at. And I think, you know, within the ski area world, uh, it's a really interesting industry with a really interesting history where it was really a self started sport that sort of said, hey, if we build it, they will come. And they did. And then they got better. But what they recognized over time is that, hey, instead of machining your own snowmaking equipment, there are efficiencies to buying it from someone else who does that and only that. And I think what what is happening on the software side of things is, is the same thing. There's this recognition that, hey, instead of trying to do everything ourselves, or instead of trying to have one supplier do everything, um, we're gonna seek specialists who are best in class at the thing that they do best in the world. And what I do love about our platform and, and, and what and our, the partnerships that we have is, you know, th- there are a small handful of companies in the ski industry, meaning ski resort companies, that can aspire to also be software companies. And it's quite hard to do that. But those who have not done that, especially as, you know, software improves at such a rapid pace, can in some ways leapfrog those who have tried to be software companies themselves, by utilizing these things that have come from the outside. And so I I often like to talk about how someone like Platykill, by working with a third party, um, who's sort of dedicated to e-commerce efficiency and and things as as little but as big as customer support for e-commerce. Because if you have a web store open, you need to have someone on the other end of the line, and that's you know another service that we offer. But they're actually capable of being better at e-commerce than people who are much larger than they are, because they're not trying to do everything in-house and on their own. And you know, it's the same reason they'll buy a, a snow gun from uh, a high-quality snowmaking provider, or you know, in their case, you know, perhaps a used one from from a neighbor up the street. Um, but we do. Uh, I mean, we have tremendous value in in marketing efficiency and, and the the data that we can provide. We've been able to empower, you know, the feeders uh, out there.
1: Yeah, and it's not just the small areas. It seems like some pretty big companies are using your your cloud platform as well.
0: Yeah, without a doubt. Um, I think uh, we range from quite small areas that do you know, 30,000 skier visits a year all all the way up to, you know, our partner in Switzerland who does 1.2 million skier visits a year. And I think what the the people who decide to work with us are very in tune with the marketing funnels that drive the success of e-commerce. And I think a lot of organizations can be tempted to sort of double down on legacy infrastructure because it solves for operational pain. And what that's yielded for a lot of folks is um, sort of challenging e-commerce environments that are associated with the nuances of legacy POS systems. But those who work with us, regardless of scale, are ones who have said, in X years, I'm going to be 100% an e-commerce business. And due to that, Um, how well I manage my e-commerce is going to be equivalent to how well I manage my business overall. Um, And so I think the reason we work with people of all scales is they're the ones who are really in tune with the marketing dollars they spend and how that turns into the consumer behavior that they seek. Because everything from, you know, the pricing strategy that you mentioned, to the, the usability of the store that the customer's engaging with, key metrics, conversion rate, which directly translates into how many marketing dollars the ski areas need to spend in order to drive the behavior that they seek. Um, so yeah, we, we love partners of all sizes.
1: Yeah, You know, we've been focused a lot on window rates, but I want to shift gears here a little bit and talk about passes. It seems like most super frequent skiers are now picking up an Epic or an Icon pass, or at least a lot of them are. Uh, now you have the Indie pass in the equation, it's pretty attractive. $199 price for two days at a bunch of different independent resorts. Where does Liftopia fit in in the Megapass skiing world that this is increasingly becoming?
0: Yeah, you know, the, the U.S. market is quite unique from a, a pass standpoint. You know, obviously, the, the Vail folks were really revolutionary in building the Epic brand over a long period of time um, and having tremendous focus on driving pre-sale of a product that had a lot of you know, positive downstream impact for their organizations, um, locked up people into being committed um, to them and their portfolio. And obviously, that's sort of they're very in touch with how that turns into dollars spent at ski areas thereafter. Um, and then, obviously, uh, you know, things like Mountain Collective um, and later Icon were sort of uh, great incremental products for the high frequency consumers. But what's kind of neat is, is liftopia.com has remained quite relevant throughout for a number of different reasons. I think you know one, 50-ish percent of skier visits uh, in the US market you know, this year will be associated with a season pass. Um, that means that 50% won't. Um, and so what we've been really focused on is how do we drive the same behavior that the skier areas seek? Um, in selling an Icon or an Epic or a Mountain Collective or an Indie, which is pre-commitment, um, to everybody who really isn't in that customer segment. And what that means for them is when, you, when you're when you able to drive pre-commitment across a broader product set, you're less likely to cave to downward price pressure to drive pre-commitment with a broader customer set. I think separately what's really kind of interesting and, you know, obviously Epic and Icon and, and, and Mountain Collective give people tremendous options in finding incremental ski days. But there's some crazy stat where something around 30, 35% of Liftopia.com customers have a season pass. And what they use Liftopia for is the ski days when they're skiing other places or when they're trying to find, you know, the, the next most interesting place that they've yet to, to give a shot. Or you know, when they go into a destination where Icon or Epic is supported, they use it to find an incremental day at a ski area that they may not be as familiar with. And it, it's sort of interesting, but it, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, skiing is an adventurous sport. Therefore, people are adventurous. Therefore, they're really seeking to try new things. And if you're going to take a trip, you kind of want to go and investigate the the, the soul of the, the small places nearby or the places that aren't um, are part of one of these cooperatives and and I think where we view our job again tying it back to our mission statement is you know we hope to best articulate you know the soul of a ski area to our customer base such that they can find their next favorite one and uh, I think that's one of the awesome things about skiing every ski area is unique every ski area is worth visiting and um, we like to sort of shine a light on all these places that may not have the same marketing budget as you know the the awesome places that are associated with um, the the larger conglomerates.
1: You know, I think the adventure element is is a really cool aspect of it, and that's a really cool way to put it because that's that's really what I feel about skiing. It's it's always an adventure when you get out. Uh, and an interesting thing about the ski business over the last several years is we've seen this. Enormous, uh, way outpacing inflation rate of increase in day tickets. So, for example, the year that you launched Liftopia, uh, Vale made headlines. and This was a big deal because a day ticket was $81. Last season, it was $209. As these, and, and you know, everyone picks on Vale, and that's fair. It's it's the you know big guy in the room but all the big mountains have, have followed. You know, Copper Mountains, $180 a day. Uh, Steamboat is, is usually, all these places have. So as that's happened with these places, like for example, Heavenly, North Star, Kirkwood, Squaw Alpine, all part of big conglomerates now, all very expensive day tickets. Have you seen an uptick in sales to these partners around Tahoe, like Homewood, Sugar Bowl, like are people saying, okay, you know, if I wanna just go ski, uh, Heavenly for a day and I don't have an epic pass. Well, that's going to cost me $175. So no, thanks Maybe I can go check out Sugar Bowl just see what this place is all about grab a ticket on Liftopia. Have you seen that as a trend?
0: Yeah, you know to be honest, it's a pretty complex data set um, Because on the one hand you might isolate people who migrate from uh, You know a North Star to a Homewood um, in Lake Tahoe on the other hand you might say, wow, and this occurred, I know it to be true. The um, arrival of Vail Resorts into the Tah- Tahoe market, when they acquired North Star and Headley and Kirkwood, meant that they brought in many more destination travelers, which actually empowered rate strength um, within the sort of more middle market ski areas in those markets. So, so I, I think certainly. To, to me, there, there's, there's a, a lot of people in the marketing world think about customer personas. Like, okay, like, this is Susie. She's an intermediate. She has this amount of income, and therefore, this is the target ski area for her. And, and I think there is that aspect of things where there are some customers who might be a Homewood customer and not a Squaw customer but it's actually much more complex than that it's it's really there there's personal identity and then there's identity of the trip that someone is taking um i try and talk about this concept a lot and just to use myself as an example you know when i fly to zurich for liftopia i'm a business traveler but united and swiss air would be missing an opportunity with me by defining me as only that because another time when I'm traveling with my family, I'm not a business traveler. And so I think what, what, what's important is um, to understand sort of who, who can afford the day ticket and what segment of, per, of, of buyer are there. But then separately, what's the, the identity of the trip that they're taking such that they decide to wait to buy at the ticket window because of the trip that they're taking is wholly associated with this is my snow chasing trip as opposed to, this is my extra day trip, I'm definitely gonna do it, so therefore I'm gonna buy in advance and find the savings that exists. And I think that's the, the challenge in the, the North American ski industry, slowly moving up every year, instead of really grabbing the pricing messaging by the horns from the beginning, is that since the beginning of time, the cost of skiing has been measured by the price of the ticket at the ticket window. Uh, you know, in the eyes of, of these types of conversations and um, you know, most of the articles that are written. Now what is true today is that is not how much it costs to go skiing. What's true today is that's how much it costs to skiing if you don't buy in advance. But because the industry didn't make a bold, immediate commitment to window rate up, presale rate down, tell people this is the price. The eyes of the, of, of the buyers and the eyes of the, uh, the, the press have remained on that lead ticket price, which is really problematic in terms of long-term customer acquisition because would-be skiers are told that it's you know, $220 to go skiing when you know, in their backyard is a West Mountain where they can ski you know, for $22 if they buy in advance. That said, I think there is sort of a, an underlying sort of pricing uh, challenge within the industry that, that is pretty complex. I mean, one of them is associated with the fact that skiing is, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's a sport that, broadly speaking, is for people who are wealthy. Um, and that there are exceptions to that within individual communities, especially within feeder markets where, you know, it's, it's remained more approachable. Um, but you know, just our, our broad, broader uh, economy's concentration of wealth challenge has further empowered upward price movement um, for these major destinations who, where there are, you know, they're competing for a very small group of very wealthy folks. Um, and they've been able to be very successful because they've been residing at the top of the market and there's been more money funneling into that um, market of buyers. Um, I think it's, it's been a little bit enhanced and this is where it's, it's challenging again for long-term growth and you can sort of see it in the, the number of skiers as a percentage of the broader population figures that are uh, a little scary for the industry. But the, the, the commitment to the core, meaning those who do ski with frequency, as measured by sort of subsidization of behavior, you know, which is an icon pass, an epic pass, a season pass in general. Has meant, you know, like the yield levels for, uh, on average, need to be balanced by some um, yield figures that are showing up in in the day pass, um, day buyer market, and and I think that, it, that's, you know, something where we still see, uh, an opportunity to to help the industry, is is to make sure that we don't just triple down on. A, a dwindling population of, you know, wealthy people uh, without sort of investing in, in um, uh, the, the folks who um, would be skiers or uh, m- might become quickly priced out because the cost of the overall experience is, is, is increasing, especially in those destinations.
1: I mean, it's, so. it's a really good point. I mean, rich or not, a beginner, someone who's never skied before, even if they have all the money in the world, they're not gonna spend $209 on a veiled Day ticket, and they're not gonna spend $699 on the Epic Pass, the Epic Local Pass, no matter how good of a deal it is. As right. someone who loves skiing, and who has the reach that you do, do you, is there any part of your company that your mission is kind of to make skiing affordable? You, you mentioned West Mountain. You, know, you can buy a ticket for $22. You couldn't probably think of a better mm-hmm. beginner mountain anywhere. It's in a great location. It's easy to get to. Um, It has very accommodating trails. So you're providing kind of access to that. Is that part of what you're trying to do? Or is that just not really factor into the business plan?
0: Yeah, you know, it definitely factors into the business plan. And I think it goes back to our our mission statement. I mean, I, I think what we're really about is, one, shining a light on the value that does exist. So that people don't think that skiing is just the cost of a day ticket, you know, at a major destination during um, Christmas week at the window, but also empowering the industry with the tools they need in order to have relevant prices for customers and or uh, trip identities that are of high value um, in a way that I- in a safe way. And, and I think it, it's uh, there's this crazy inefficiency associated with how window rates used to be structured. And, and you know again, it remains there optically. But um, if you think about how that $81 or $88 price was decided on in 2005 at Vail, when, when you have no e-commerce and no pre-sale of a day ticket, your ticket is your ticket is your ticket. So you have to come up with a price for it. And so you say, well, my best days are worth X. My, Worst days are worth Y, and so therefore my price needs to be Z. And that Z is in the broad range. And since they never sell out, they they're always either overpriced or underpriced when they're priced in the middle of that range. Going back to something that I tried to suggest in my longer soliloquy earlier, you know, what what we've seen happen in the Alps, which is what we believe should have happened more rapidly in the US, is distinct rapid upward movements in window rate, balanced by a response that shines a light on distinct high-value price points for customers who are the value buyer. And basically, the joke that I had, I was talking with uh, Eric Friedman, who was at Mad River Glen Forever back in the day, and I was like, hey, Eric, what you should do, and this was maybe in 2010, so I think Vale was you know around 100 or something, um, I was like, what you should do is move Mad River's window rate to $200. And when the national press starts going crazy over the fact that Mad River Glen has these price points, you respond with, no, 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 it's not that. It doesn't cost that much to ski here. That's if you buy the ticket window. You wouldn't buy an airline ticket at the airport, right? Go check out our website. You can get December 15th for $7.99 right now. And so, like, the industry had an opportunity to rapidly ex- educate the, the customer base and, and you know, those who write about the industry. But that they sort of slowly moved in this direction. They meant they lost that opportunity. But it's understandable because what they were trying to do was drive greater presale behavior of season passes. So they, they actually looked at the optics of a high window price because it drove that you know, commitment to the core audience, which was, hey, we're subsidizing high-frequency users, so we need the optics of a high window rate in order to drive this behavior. Um, but it just had downstream impacts for the, the infrequent skiers. Um, and, and I think that has been sort of largely okay because of the concentration of wealth within our economy and the fact that most of our customers do come Um, from some amount of wealth, but it it makes me a little bit fearful for sort of long-term customer acquisition, because especially the the West Mountains of the world, I think if they try and replicate what they think or what they see um, the destination resorts doing, uh, you know, they may no longer be the healthy feeder areas that those destination markets rely on in seven years, you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, and, and I think for for better or worse, we're about to see that <clears throat> experiment played out in a big way in the Northeast uh, with Vail buying peak resorts. I know, it, well, I don't know, but it, the perception is from your website that Hunter Mountain, uh, Mount Snow, which are sort of like destination aspirational places. It's like where you go yeah. once you're kind of like good enough to try something good. Um, yeah. Those have long been sort of the top of the masthead head at Liftopia when you go and ski the Northeast. Uh, Vail, as far as I can tell, has not partnered with you in an active way. I can't find any of their mountains on Liftopia. All the other big conglomerates, uh, the Alteras mountains are on there, Boynes are on there, Powders are on there, Vail is not. Um, are you anticipating that those mountains, Hunter and Mount Snow and Wildcat will go away and will no longer be part of Liftopia after Vail goes through their traditional first season cycle of, okay, we'll just let everything sit. Uh, and then they kind of start yanking all the deals out. Um, is, is that something you're preparing for, or, or, or is that not something you can really get into yet?
0: Yeah, you know, I, I mean, it's, it's tough for me to say. Um, obviously, um, they're really smart, and they understand how to execute when they acquire new assets. And, you know, the, they're, this acquisition is really a pretty unique one, because it picked up 17 ski areas instead of one or two. And they are in, you know, a highly competitive drive market. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what their, you know, long-term distribution decisions are. What I can say though is, if you look at what Vale is doing now, and I wrote a post last spring about this. Um, you know, so they launched this Epic for Everyone product, which is sort of squarely aimed at these same concepts. You know, like, and if you listen, I listened to the. Um, the, I forget the name of the exact podcast, but the, the Vail Resorts folks released a podcast about sort of the evolution of the Epic product direction. And if you listen to what they're saying, they're saying the exact same things. You know, This is all about pre-sale behavior. This is all about trying to find value across the spectrum for different types of customers. And, and later, it's about finding the customers um, and, and and putting those products in the hands of those customers. And you know we we think we can be a, a phenomenal partner for them uh, to do so. Uh, but you know they we uh, we have seen um, clients come and go and go and come uh, on, on the and, and uh, so we've, you know we we're, we're hopeful we'll get to uh, work with them in the long term.
1: Yeah. Meanwhile, it seems like you're expanding at a pretty healthy pace around the world. I, you know you're in uh, you know obviously U.S. and Canada all over Europe, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, South America. What's on your wish list? What's next?
0: Um, what's on my wish list? I think what I, I mean, what you probably noticed in this conversation, um, and, and you did sort of like say as much, is that we speak a lot about what Liftopia is for ski areas. And part of it is that the, the consumer value proposition is, is pretty straightforward, but uh what my wish list is for the industry to mature at a more rapid rate, to understand their market and how to speak to their customers and for them to really see the benefit of the platform that we're bringing to them and how we together with them uh, can can speak to an audience to drive more skiing behavior. But I, like, like globally, what's been really exciting and it, as it pertains to that, sort of long-winded initial answer, is in the global markets, they were later to come to pre-sale and e-commerce, but now that they're there, they're very in tune with how critical pricing strategy, quality of tech, quality of marketing, execution, et cetera, is to driving that behavior. And what, what I'm optimistic about is as not just the global markets, but the North American market as well gets closer with these data that um, empower their businesses, they'll be better businesses, which means they're healthier companies, which means they can invest in product, which means skiing is better for skiers. And I think like going back to like the, like how this needs to be good for both skiers and ski resorts is, you know, back in, some people may be wanting to throw a shoe at me because I, you know, was a proponent of removing discounts from ski shops, for example, but those deals really were unfair to ski areas. And it means that their businesses are less successful. And skiers should really want ski areas to be successful businesses. Because the more successful the ski areas are, the more they can invest in the experience, which makes skiing that much better. And, and there's, there was this joke that I had from way back in the day, which was, you know, if you asked a, a skier what they wanted resorts to do, uh, you know, they would say, well, we want, you know, better, infrastructure, lower prices, and fewer people, which doesn't exactly make for a healthy business. And what they should really want is for a healthy business that provides value to them and, you know, gives the the, the operators certainty to make long-term investment in providing that quality experience for, you know, years to come. And, and I, I think those who are and have done that have sort of shown how skiing can become relevant to a broader group of people even if they're not skiers and that that's you know what the destinations um have done a great job of is to say you know like aspen is not just about the skiing you know it's a it's a world-class destination for a lot of reasons and that's you know yes it started with a great um foundation but it it's also because they've been able to invest in their community, because they've been able to run a successful business. Uh, so, anyways, I, I, I think I, I wish for customers to see that, you know, when ski areas run well, they're better places to go.
1: Getting back to the global question quickly, I'm curious about China. I, I know that a lot of tech companies are shut out of China, uh, Facebook and Twitter being just two gigantic examples. But they're really pushing over there. I think they have something like 700 ski areas in the country now, and the government is really pushing it as a sort of health initiative, get the population outdoors. Is that a market that you've tried to access?
0: It's not When we've tried to access, and um, I don't want to pretend to know China like other people do. I think what's interesting to me about it is, you know, as a skier, you and I might have in our head what 700 ski areas are and what skiing is, but... Skiing in China in x years when you know they achieve the really lofty goals that they have, which is to create tens of millions of new skiers, may be something completely different than what we 're familiar with as skiing and you know i a a, a good example of this is imagine i don 't know if you're familiar with top golf um, you know it's an entertainment center where you can go and hit balls and you know, have some, uh, some drinks and some food with your friends. Um, to someone who has been a golfer, that's not golf. But it's possible that in 10 years, that's golf. And people who go out and hit the links, it's just this fringe, weird thing that people do. Um, and, and to me, you know, the way that China emerges is gonna be very different from the places where like, skiing has been a legacy sport. And it's very possible that skiing in China, which will be the definition of skiing if they hit their numbers in terms of customers, like, <laughs> will be top golf, um, or or something like it. I, I mean, again, I don't want to pretend to know more than I do. Um, you know, uh, uh, both within the ski context and outside of it. I think it's obviously a very interesting market um, for uh, for the global ski industry to draw consumers out of because. You know, the, the, there is uh, wealth and a lot of people traveling and, and sort of aspiring into these world-class destinations. But I think that the what in-market skiing looks like in China, I, I think, might be quite different from what we think skiing
1: is. Yeah, it's funny. We have uh, pretty soon here, right across the river—I'm I'm in Manhattan—right across the river in New Jersey, they're opening— the country's first indoor ski slope. And yeah. I was reading some descriptions of it, and, and it sounded like they they kind of contoured the hill so that beginners, which is what they anticipate being you know, a large volume of their skiers, they'll kind of have these banks that they follow yep. down to avoid the you know epic yard sailing, which, which probably wouldn't be a great idea indoors. So that will be interesting to see. And, and I think it's, like you said, it's not really skiing how we think of it, but it yeah. may be a lot of people's first experience with the sport.
0: Yeah, and, and it, it might be their only experience with the sport, mm-hmm. and I think that that's so the the folks behind the so Snow Operating who's who's running that um, are really smart about how to introduce people to the sport. They, they sort of pioneered what you just described as is, is uh, terrain based learning, um, which sort of designs contours to help the turn shapes occur as opposed to just teaching people about angulation mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Um, but I, I, I think that, you know, what, what's interesting is those individual businesses may have repeat customers who will only ski there ever. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, one, they're kind of down market. And so that may not be someone who will ever get on an airplane to go skiing. Right. Um, and, you know, it may be less about the skiing and more about the fact that they have a good beer selection in the, in the lobby. And, and I think that's OK. It just is like, you have to understand, like interpretation of data is important. So, and right. uh, so you have to understand, so like, are these skier days in the same sense as skier days in the past? Or is it just like a new definition, um, much like a, a, a ski area that does you know, 70% um, after-school program, skier visits is very different from Jackson Hole Mountain Resort. You know yeah. I
1: mean? I, well, it's interesting because it's actually <clears throat> the indoor ski area is part of a giant mall. So it's definitely being marketed as, you know, an entertainment experience, like a theme park. Um, Before I let you go, Evan, one last question for you. If I'm a customer, what is the secret to getting the best price on Lyft tickets?
0: Uh, So all else held equal, um, buy in advance.
1: The sooner you buy, the less you pay.
0: Um, So that's true of all days. Uh, Separately, uh, choose off-peak days. Uh, Thirdly, try somewhere that you haven't tried before. Um, and, you know, if you're an in-market skier, so if you're used to going to Vermont, New Hampshire, and you go to some of the bigger areas, maybe give a mid-scale place a try. So, mm-hmm. like, if you look at, like, the, the like, opposite ends of the spectrum of expense. So you say, like, Christmas week, at-the-window, destination resort. Then you have Wednesday, three months in advance, you know, a uh, uh, smaller ski area in a tertiary market, mm-hmm. um, and so that those are sort of about as extreme a difference you can get, um, but, but the point is, like, in general, it's cheaper to ski on off-peak days, always, it's cheaper to buy in advance than to wait, um, and then I think for so many reasons, it, it's great to, to, to try, um, you know, all of the little ski areas that are dotted around the big ones that you know and love. Um, because each of them really does have its own soul, and it's very much worth visiting. And I, I, I've been to a lot of them, so I know, know for sure.
1: Well, you, you know, you're on the West Coast now, but you said you're a Massachusetts guy, born and raised. Yeah, Any probably. places in the Northeast that you think people should check out that are probably off their radar?
0: Oh, man, that's such a political <laughs> answer. Um, well, where'd you ski growing up? I, I grew up, up skiing left? at Bradford. So I, I, I learned to ski at Bradford. Um, and then when I went to the Big Mountains, I went... Uh, I went on up to Aditash, um, which I still love. I I had a season pass to Sugarloaf for four years, and I think that's a great skier's mountain. Uh, I think it's worth sort of doing a little extra drive there. But then there are a bunch of sort of like mid-market gems. Um, You know, Magic has a big cult following. Um, I actually love Ragged. Uh, I think it's a really high-quality product with a cool lodge and feel to it. Um, but, but there are so many, you know, like there, uh, like if, if any of our partners are listening, I apologize if I didn't get to you um, because it, like it, it is really cool. And I think New England, you know, one has such deep skiing history. I know we chatted about uh, sort of lost ski area project, um, but it, it's like it's worth bucket listing all of them because they're super interesting because I've never been, for example, is Camden Snowbowl which is like the only ski area with views of the Atlantic, which is just cool in its own right. Um, but uh, anyways, I, there's, I, I think, explore because you're going to find something that you like.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's, we're very lucky to have a lot of depth of choice in the region, and I think most people just go right to Stowe, Sugarbush, Killington, uh, all these big areas, but you can explore your whole lifetime out here. Um, well, Evan, I can't thank you enough for your time today. I uh, really appreciate it. Best of luck with this coming season. I uh, hope you see, see those sales continue to tick up, and, uh, and we'll talk to you again soon. Awesome. Thanks, Stuart. It's Evan Reese, co-founder and CEO of Liftopia. Thanks for that, Evan. Lyftopia is a terrific site. I use it at some point every single season. Even if you have a pass, it is a great way to check out some new mountains. Check out an indie, a smaller area, something that isn't on your pass. If you've never heard of the place, all the better. Like Evan said, skiing should be an adventure. If you like that interview, if you like the show, go to iTunes, leave us a review and a rating. Follow us on Twitter at Storm Ski Journal and on Facebook. And please subscribe to the Storm Skiing Newsletter at skiing.substack.com. The podcast is only part of the storm. There's plenty more to it and it all comes via the email newsletter. Next up, back to the Northeast. Got a good one for you. Berkshire East and Catamount owner and general manager, John Schaefer, joins me on the storm. These are two tremendous little mountains. The Schaefer's have run Berkshire East for decades and they transformed it into a really rad little mountain. They recently bought Catamount. They are transforming that mountain as well. Both mountains are in Massachusetts. That actually straddles the state line with New York, one of only three ski areas in the United States that straddles the state border. If you're not familiar with these mountains, go check them out as homework. They're a lot of fun. They're both on in the Indy Pass, and you will learn a whole lot more about both of them next week. Thank you so much for your time. I'm Stuart Winchester. I'll talk to you again soon.
0: The Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.